Welcome to the Holden Village Podcast. Holden is a community of education, programming, and worship located in the remote wilderness of the Cascade Mountains. These snapshots provide a glimpse into the learnings taking place in our community. Let's tune in to this week's highlight. My name is Anthony Batiza. I am a professor at St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. Uh, and my, my specialty the, is Martin Luther, sort of Reformation theology, and particularly Christian ethics as it relates to Martin Luther and the Reformation legacy. What I like to try and do with my students when I'm teaching in college is get them to try and understand uh, sort of the different claims and ideas being made by Christian thinkers, usually spread out across the centuries. Try to see what kind of resources there are in those traditions, in those texts, in those figures. I'm, I'm trying to make some connections between the theme this summer, the fear not theme, which is taken out of the book of Isaiah, uh, and just sort of play with that uh, with some other Christian sources, some biblical texts, and some more recent literary figures. What we've been doing is looking at a guy named Thomas Aquinas, kind of a well-known uh, doctor of the church, saint, uh, theologian from the Middle Ages, and of course Martin Luther, my guy. I'm trying to say, you know, what is it that Martin Luther and Thomas Aquinas have to offer us, have to teach us, when we think about questions related to fear and courage? Um, part of my, my sense here is that we all have an intuitive sense of what fear is. We've all experienced it. We know what, what fear is like. But it's nice to have these theologians, these thinkers, help us think more critically or develop just a, a deeper, richer vocabulary for what fear is like. So, for example, in my, in my session, I was sort of walking folks through how Thomas understands fear as this passion. So it's something that kind of happens to you or something that you sort of receive. Uh, it occurs in, in you and through you. But it's also something that you have some control over, that you can kind of train or, or um, uh, shape in certain ways through, through the cultivation of, of virtues. Um, how it is that, that trying to remove fear makes no sense, because being without fear means that you don't actually have anything you could lose. A person who doesn't have any fears, Thomas would say, is a person who doesn't actually love anything. And what kind of non-human life would that look like if you didn't have love, if there, weren't, there wasn't the possibility of loss? So trying to, again, work through Thomas's text, try and get us to think about how he breaks down the different pieces of fear, um, what affects fear, uh, how fear responds to both the magnitude of, of, of these losses, how close they are, they are to us, um, uh, and, our, and our sense of anxiety that develops over our fears about unseen losses or the possibility of losing things that we can't control or don't know what's going to happen. Again, I, I like the language of the ancients and the medieval thinkers. I like the language that Thomas uses and inherits and uses. It talks about fear as a kind of, of contraction. Right? It's something that kind of pulls you in. And this is what makes it um, different than the work of love. Right? So love is something that sort of pushes out uh, it's, it's an appetite. It's something that you, um, again, you want, you desire another. Uh, and the greatest experience of this, he thinks, is, of course, in the love of God, which he would call charity, uh, in which you desire union with God. Right? Sort of a deep friendship, a deep connection. You don't desire to become God or replace God, but you just want to be a part of and with God. And that's a desire that's fulfilled in, in the life to come but tasted somewhat in this life. Whereas fear, 
again, you're, you're, you're afraid of losing something, and you, you, you tighten, you constrict, it pulls you in. Um, but again, he doesn't dismiss that contraction or that fear as something not human, it's meant to be gotten rid of. It's meant to be understood. And, you know, it's signaling to you the things that you love. It's making you aware of things you want to protect. You want to make sure that the, those fears are signaling in the right way, they're pointing to things that are actually good and should be loved and aren't overwhelming you to the point that you pull in upon yourself, that you hide, that you choose an action over action. Um, and sort of, you know, you're going to find yourself with competing fears. And so, yeah, playing around in the sort of Christian theological toolbox with Thomas Aquinas and then um, getting folks to then think about what are the kinds of fears in our culture at this moment. And I think right now, at least in my life and a lot of the folks uh, shared the same feeling. Uh, a lot of our fears are deeply tied to the current sort of political uh, situation in which we find ourselves in the United States. And so what I did was I showed some images and played some clips from a couple of different rallies. I, I played a little clip from a Black Lives Matter march in which we heard the sounds of protesters chanting and, and marching. We heard the sounds of police sirens, of orders to disperse. And so I talked a little bit about why, what kind of fears are at play in, in all of that, in, in that clip and in that, in that scene. What kind of fears do African American and other people of color have in the midst of police brutality and other realities in America? And conversely, what kind of fears are being evoked by people who are nervous about or reject the Black Lives Matter movement? What kind of fears did, are they bringing to the table or, or, or being drawn out of them? We also listened to a little clip from a, a rally in Duluth, Minnesota, where President Trump came um, a while back and, and, and rallied some of his supporters. And the people cheering and, and, and build that wall and various other kinds of things. And we worked through similarly uh, what kinds of fears are all tied up in some of President Trump's rhetoric, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, and what kind of fears are there in the people who support President Trump and, and those who, some of whom we've seen are motivated by, by real, I would say, at least animus or distrust of various kinds of people, be they Mexican, African American, uh, Chinese, um, etc. And it's other folks who have, I think, more... Um, uh, economic fears or more fears about stability or their own identity, their cultural identity, the cultural identity of the United States. And so how do all these kinds of threats of loss, loss of identity, loss of paycheck, loss of political power, how do all of these generate fear in people that we're seeing play out before us um, every day uh, in you know, social media feeds and on TV screens? That gave us a nice way of trying to use some of Thomas's language and tools to think about you know, what are the things people love that, that they're afraid of losing. Um, are their fears justified or not? Why or why not? How would, we, how would we understand that? When we look at Martin Luther and the contribution he makes, he has this, this real deep sense that fear and suffering are hallmarks of the Christian life. Um, and he has this real deep sense that the, the more one tries to listen to the call of Christ, the, one, the more one tries to be a Christian in one's life, in this world, um, the more the devil is going to attack you, uh, the, the more challenges you're going to find yourself facing. And he thinks that uh, Christians just can't sort of slough that off and say that, well, those fears aren't real, that suffering doesn't matter anything for all of the glory in Christ. I think he really tries to hold this deep tension of, you know, these, these sufferings and this fear are going to come, um, and we can't downplay that, that that's going to be a part of it. 
Um, he's reading a lot of this through his own life and his own experience, but I think it resonates well with people when, when they recognize that, yeah, sometimes um, uh, living a certain kind of life, behaving in a certain way, um, is terrifying. Uh, you might find yourself losing family, losing friends, losing economic opportunities, losing all kinds of things. And so those fears are well-placed, um, and they sometimes can't be avoided if you're going to, to follow a certain path. And in the second half, uh, I make a little bit of a shift uh, and try and make some connections to what fear and courage look like in some more modern resources. And for those pieces, I've, I've selected three African-American males who have been involved in social criticism and social activism uh, from the 1950s to the present. And so we start with Martin Luther King Jr., right, well-known figure, just looking at his letter from Birmingham jail and trying to get people to, to think through and think about why is it in that letter that Dr. King identifies the white moderate as the person that he's more afraid of than the Klansman. I think for a lot of us, the idea of a hooded people with torches uh, committing all kinds of atrocities under the cover of night um, is one of the most terrifying things we can think of. Um, here in America recently, we've had um, now two Unite the Right rallies in Charlottesville, Virginia. We had one major one last year uh, in 2017 that resulted in, in one death and various beatings and all kinds of clashes between uh, um, various groups. And then we had the one-year anniversary of it here uh, just recently uh, from when the, we're having this session. And so, yeah, all, all those images of alt-right and, and white supremacists, I think, are, are, are terrifying. Um, but I think King offers us a, a poignant and surprising reminder that the more terrifying thing for him uh, in his work has been the white moderate. And by that, he means the person who, who says they support um, uh, equality for the African-American person in this country, the person who says that everything that King is doing is well and good, but he just needs to, to slow down a little. Uh, that he's moving too quickly, uh, that he, his tactics are causing too much division or uh, inciting too much anger. Um, and so he, he finds that kind of foot dragging or that kind of hesitancy to be really a greater challenge to the cause of equality and the cause of freedom that he is, is laboring so hard for. Uh, again, not just for African Americans, but for the poor, uh, for those being sent off to and dying in Vietnam, for all of these causes that King is so well known for. Um, he really experiences this sense that the foot-dragging white moderate uh, is a little bit more dangerous than the torch-wielding white supremacist. Uh, and then we shift a little bit and look at the work of James Baldwin. Uh, James Baldwin is sort of famous as being both a novelist and a social critic. Um, and as a social critic and a sort of social commentator, he wrote just a, a massive series of essays and short stories over the course of his life. Um, and so we're, we look at some pieces from one of his more famous collections, um, The Fire Next Time, which he writes a little uh, letter to his nephew and reflecting on his experience um, as an African-American male. And then looks back in, in the second piece on his life growing up in, in Harlem, in the church, uh, as the son of a, of a preacher, as a preacher himself, sort of a preacher for a while as a young man. And one of the things that I, I love about Baldwin is that he is the sort of social critic who just has a, an incisive gaze. He can just sort of see things with a certain clarity and a certain depth that most people easily miss. Um, 
And because of that, uh, he demands a certain level of truth-telling about the American experience and the experience of African Americans in this country. And so in, in a little essay he has, uh, actually when he's writing about what it means to be an author, he has this phrase that I love. He says that it's an author's job to tell the, all the truth that one can bear, and then to tell a little bit more. Um, and I think this actually works as a really nice summation of what I think the Christian life is like. Uh, it's to tell as much truth as we think we can bear or others can bear, and then just a little bit more. Um, and, and I think that requires, as I talk with my group with folks in our sessions, that requires a certain amount of courage, right? not, not fearlessness, um, but a certain courage to place people in an uncomfortable space, to place yourself in an uncomfortable space, um, to speak hard truths um, that are hard um, because they are going to hurt people that you care about. They might hurt you. They might bring you into disrepute or into some sort of difficult position. When Baldwin encourages us to sort of uh, uh, boldly speak the truth and, and to speak a little bit more, you think, well, there's going to be a fear in, in doing that. Right? There's going to be a cost in speaking like a hard truth in a relationship, at your job, wherever you, wherever you find yourself. But then you also think, and you also perhaps are afraid, of what happens if you don't speak. Uh, and so you have these kind of competing fears and, and trying to choose the one um, that actually results in the greater loss of letting you know, a racist joke go by without speaking up or letting somebody say something that you find reprehensible or atrocious. Um, you know, the fear of what happens if you don't speak uh, and, and recognizing that. So yes, yeah, so we wrap up the week with a, a contemporary figure, uh, a writer named Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, who is well known for a couple of big essays in The Atlantic, uh, he has a couple of books that he's written. The more famous of the last two uh, were Between the World and Me, and We Were Eight Years in Power. And we are looking at Coates as someone who is uh, actually uh, not a Christian, but uh, offers us two things, I think. Uh, one, he offers a, a pretty scathing, uh, at times, criticism of Christianity. Um, he, he's somewhat suspicious uh, of the Christian endeavor, of uh, sort of a retreat into church buildings, into songs, into, into texts and, and, and other images uh, that gets around this work of telling the truth about the life that we live in America. And so he, he's a bit suspicious, I think, of Christians. And I think he's also someone who speaks very clearly about his own experience as an African-American male growing up in this country. Um, he's sort of mimicking James Baldwin's style, this idea of writing a letter to those who come after you. In this case, he's writing a letter to his son in Between the World and Me. But in that letter, trying to get his son to understand the kind of, of experience he had growing up in Baltimore, uh, the way that you know schools were offered as a place that were supposed to train you for the world, but really um, they weren't places where you were receiving education about how to thrive. Um, they were places that, in his experience, often were more limiting than they were liberating. And he also speaks poignantly about the fear uh, of life uh, in a hard neighborhood, in a hard town. Um, the fear of, of what's going to happen to your life as you grow up. The fear of what the police can do to you. And, and he talks about one of his friends who uh, was a college classmate who was uh, killed by police uh, in nearby Pennsylvania. Um, and then the fear of, you know, life on the streets just in general, the, the way that fear seemed to infect even his own parents' relationship with him and how they thought that, you know, in order to protect him, they had to be that much harder on him to sort of keep him safe from all the dangers that were lurking.
And so I hope that by looking at Coates and Baldwin and King, um, the, the folks in, in our session will get a, get a sense of just the effects of fear on many African-Americans and people of color in this country. Uh, some of their criticisms of Christianity, some of their worries and fears about what happens when well-meaning Christians sort of isolate themselves or don't engage in ways that are challenging and difficult uh, for the work of justice in this world. And if nothing else, uh, to expose folks to just people I think are great thinkers and give them a chance maybe to go back um, when they're back home, wherever they end up landing in the weeks and months ahead, uh, to grab a copy of, of King or Baldwin or Coates and to just let their words speak to them for a little bit. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.